Welcome to The Boiling Frog, where we contemplate the intersection of politics, economics, psychology, history, and science. I'm Seth Rosenblatt. And I'm Mark Olbert. Today, we're going to take a deeper dive into one of the psychological phenomena we introduced in our second podcast, the notion of hindsight bias, and how this incredibly pervasive bias colors our analysis of any situation. And it also has some very significant implications for how we debate and develop the laws which regulate our communities and, in fact, make them possible. Even more importantly, it's much more pervasive than you may think. So let's start, Mark, with defining hindsight bias. It's the notion that an event was predictable, even though logically it would have been very difficult to envision beforehand. Whenever someone says, I knew it all along, it's probably the case that they didn't actually know it all along and, in fact, are suffering from hindsight bias. That's because hindsight is twenty twenty, and once we learn what we know, it's hard to look at events through any other kind of lens. You can't unsee something. We'd have to deliberately and consciously decide to forget something, which is never easy to do. And, and this is complicated because a major part of humans' intelligence is the ability to see patterns, right, to connect things. It's one of the reasons why we enjoy doing these podcasts, which are all about pointing out connections among things that may not seem otherwise connected. But our pattern recognition capability is so powerful that sometimes we see patterns and connections that don't really exist, almost like a false positive, if you will. You know, Seth, I think that that also likely explains why paranoia is so common among human beings. It's obviously in some circumstances a survival trait, but in larger communities it can be and sometimes often is a serious problem. But that's a topic for another podcast. Well, isn't that what leads to like, conspiracy theories and, and why we're so attached to them? Yeah, I think so. It's also the source of that old adage, post hoc urgito propter hoc, which I know I've used before. It's one of my favorite aphorisms. In Latin, it stands for after this, therefore because of this. And that means we see connections between two events that occur in sequence simply because they occur in sequence, even though they may have nothing to do with each other at all. And, and I agree that's a problem. However, you know, I think we're more often unable to see patterns that do exist because we don't know the final result ahead of time, essentially a false negative. And I think this is particularly true when we think about crime and the role of hindsight bias, because it clouds our ability to recognize that in any given event, there's a wide asymmetry of information among everyone involved in that event. So in the case of crime, the criminal almost always has more information than the victim. They have the intention to commit such crime, they have the knowledge of how and when they'll commit it, and yet the victim is rarely privy to any of that information. Crime is facilitated almost by definition because victims are caught off guard. Yeah, which is why after any crime, particularly the really big ones that catch public attention, there's always a lot of soul-searching and hand-wringing about why something wasn't done before it happened. People keep saying, the signs were there. Right, but we have to recognize that pattern recognition is a lot easier when you know the conclusion. When you've seen the final outcome, it's, I think of it as it's a lot easier to put together a jigsaw puzzle if you have the final image as a reference. <laughs> you know, that reminds me, many years ago, I figured out that when you're looking at solving a maze-type puzzle, it's always much, much faster if you start at the exit point and work backwards. The correct turn to make in every situation is much more obvious when you look backwards from a valid position than it is when you look forward from any position. And this can happen on a much larger scale, too. I mean, think about what happened. The tragedy on 9-11 became clear to us after that event that terrorists could use a plane itself as a bomb. And only afterwards did we come up with mitigation measures like locking cockpit doors that would have prevented that. Before 9-11, very few of us even thought about that possibility because it had never been done before. 
historical hijackings were always about terrorists trying to get to another country, get money or something like that. And the perpetrators had a lot more information than the victims about a new way to cause terror because they effectively discovered a weakness in the security system that few people had noticed. So it feels dumb to us now that we never had impenetrable cockpit doors before 9-11, but that's our hindsight bias at work. Yeah, and unfortunately, in the area of something like mass shootings, that hindsight bias constantly keeps tripping us up every time a mass shooting takes place. You always find law enforcement agencies or schools or wherever the public venue was that the shooting took place, they're always criticized after the shooting takes place for not seeing the signs ahead of time. Because the problem is, because even if we knew someone was potentially dangerous, that's very different from someone actually doing something dangerous and committing a crime. Which actually is an inevitable consequence of the fact that we have chosen, and I think rightfully so, we've chosen to have a system of government that protects individual liberty by punishing actions and not generally intentions. That kind of freedom opens the door for criminal behavior, arguably more broadly than a system that would be designed to punish intentions as opposed to actions. But who would want to live under a more aggressive system? That's why the term police state is not a term of endearment. And even if that were the case, it would still be near impossible to predict the time, location, and method of any crime, because the pattern leading up to the crime is hard to see for anyone other than the criminal. Hindsight bias is so powerful and so ubiquitous and so potentially dangerous, we've actually had to embed a counterweight to it deep within our legal system. We don't allow somebody to be considered guilty of a crime if they just happen to fit into a pattern by association. That's part of the basis for why we say you are innocent until you are proven guilty. The mere fact that you were associated with a criminal act is not enough. The fact that you were in a pattern that looked like you were part of a criminal act is not enough. You can't be guilty by association. You have to be proven to be guilty. And in fact, you have to be proven to be guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And the fact that we had to explicitly include this in our legal system and that we have to instruct every single jury that's ever heard a criminal case in that principle shows just how pervasive hindsight bias is and how dangerous we've learned it can be to a community. Because very few people would want to live in a community that could arbitrarily and capriciously throw them in jail just because they happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. But then there's always this tension, this sort of worry that we're not as safe as individuals because we aren't doing enough then to detect criminal actions activity soon enough before crime happens. That's right, Seth. And it's why every single candidate for office, particularly on the local level that I'm familiar with, always stands for law and order, whatever that may be in some particular circumstance. They don't want to create an attack surface for a future opponent by being soft on crime and then having some significant crime take place on their watch. Which then unfortunately sets the stage for criminalizing innocent activities, particularly if performed by someone, you know, not part of the majority group in any particular community, right? And I realize that's another topic, uh, again, for a future podcast. Seth, I want to be clear. I don't mean that we shouldn't hold ourselves and our government accountable for doing a better job in predicting and potentially preventing crime. It's always important to analyze what went wrong in a situation and study how to improve approaches to law enforcement, investigations, or any other matter that might mitigate future tragedies. But it's a balancing act. And we also have to recognize we'll never get it 100% right because of that asymmetry of information between perpetrators and victims. And as we talked about before, our legitimate bias in favor of individual rights and privacy. 
Which does mean there are limits then to how much a community is willing to do in practice, right? All sorts of limits, actually. Detecting criminal activity in the making takes time, effort, and money, most of which, in a healthy community, is going to be wasted if you start digging into lots of, let's call them, proto-patterns. Because in any healthy community, there just isn't that much criminal activity. And you also run the risk of creating a sort of a tear in the community, or look at something like the McCarthy hearings. I saw this on a local level, too, when one of the periodic waves of home burglaries that happen in almost any suburban community hit part of San Carlos. I attended some community meetings where you could sense people, decent, kind people, moving towards a willingness to, metaphorically at least, see potential miscreants torn limb from limb for daring to even consider burglarizing someone's home. And unfortunately, politically, that could be leveraged. I mean, Trump earned a lot of political capital by doing just that on a national level, just playing on fear of immigrants, for example, right? Some of whom are in fact criminals, but as a percentage actually commit fewer crimes than the general population. Which is a great segue to one of the clearest examples of hindsight bias in American society, gun ownership. And Mark, because this is such a loaded topic, we should lay out a couple caveats before we're having this discussion. We're not entering a debate about what the Second Amendment means or what's illegal, what's not. This is really a discussion about the practical results of hindsight bias as it relates to policymaking around guns. And we're also not talking about guns used for hunting, selected protective needs like hiking in rural Alaska, or for law enforcement or military purposes. We are focused here solely on how laws interact with guns when they're used as a vehicle for committing criminal acts, particularly killing people. So the debate around guns is an amazing example of an otherwise rational policy debate colored by all kinds of psychological phenomena. Not only hindsight bias, but starting point bias, the prisoner's dilemma that we talked about last podcast, and even the notion of the boiling frog itself. It also has deep cultural roots in our society, many of which are related to America's westward expansion and the relatively weak governance structures that existed in early settlements, which were then badly miscast by Hollywood when it created the Western and its staple of a bad man with a gun only being stopped by a courageous good man with a gun. In reality, all of those people were mostly bad, in some sense, men, because they were killing people. Right. And the whole notion of a bad guy with a gun only stopped by a good guy with a gun is a perfect example of a logical fallacy because of hindsight bias. I think of it, a well-meaning person could buy a gun and even be trained in its use, but they can't buy foresight, right? The element of surprise belongs to the perpetrator and almost always wins. You know, Seth, that reminds me about how Ronald Reagan was shot despite being surrounded by some of the best trained and heavily armed good guys that we have. And more recently, Fort Hood was the scene of two shootings, even though it was filled with a bunch of heavily armed and highly trained good guys. Right. And then take it in a scenario of, you know, a mass shooting. So when that shooting happened in Las Vegas a few years back, no one could predict that a shooter would rent a room in that particular hotel on that particular day and target that particular crowd. No number of armed good guys at the concert could have protected the victims or stopped the shooter before he did incredible harm because he had the advantage of foresight and planning. Seth, if anything, I can only imagine the chaos that would have erupted and the additional lives that would have been lost if people in that crowd had been heavily armed and a gun battle broke out among the victims. Armed victims who are caught off guard with little information about the real threat almost inevitably make a tragedy worse. 
And it's why many law enforcement folks will tell you that one of their biggest fears in dealing with a potentially armed suspect is the presence of armed, quote, good guys in the neighborhood. But unfortunately, the gun debate has been framed as a balance of individual rights versus a larger public good of collective safety, perhaps. But Seth, even if that framing was fair, it's a classic prisoner's dilemma. We'd all be better off collectively if nobody had guns. But more importantly, the framing itself is flawed because it's not an objective benefit. It's a perceived benefit. And that's right. And I think of it this way. And Mark, I'm going to give you a hypothetical. There's an armed robber in your home in the middle of the night. Do you want to have a gun yourself? (laughs) Hell yes, I do. Even though I have no experience with firearms, the risk to my family would be so high, I'd want to be armed, even if my first action would be to simply call 911. Right. So many Americans, therefore, just assume that a gun is good for protecting oneself or one's family. But outside of Star Trek, guns don't just appear out of thin air at the moment of need. You have to have them in your possession pending future use which creates all sorts of risks. And this is why empirically, gun ownership significantly increases the likelihood of you or someone you love dying or being injured by that gun, whether it's intentionally, accidentally, whether it's a homicide or suicide. Those risks, Seth, also exist for the entire time you own the gun. And since most people are really not too good at assessing the probability of small long-term risks, we all tend to underestimate the cost to ourselves and our families of owning a gun for self-defense. So therefore, Mark, the hypothetical I just gave you is actually a false choice. You don't get to decide at the moment of that home invasion if you want a gun. You will have likely had to have made that decision to purchase a gun many years before. So since you can't know where and when any criminal may strike, it's incredibly more likely that such a weapon purchased years before will somehow harm the very people it's intended to protect. And as I mentioned, Seth, because people are in general really bad at assessing the cumulative risks of low probability events, we always mess that up. I mean, consider, if there's only one chance in a hundred in any given year that someone in your household would accidentally hurt or kill themselves with a gun that was in your household, over a 17-year period, there's actually a one in six chance somebody someday is going to get hurt or get killed. 17 years is not all that long a time, and those are Russian roulette odds. Very few people I know are willing to play Russian roulette. Yeah, so bottom line, while there certainly are stories of people thwarting a home burglar with their firearm, those are dwarfed by the number of stories where such home weapons are used either intentionally or accidentally to harm or kill the gun owner or their family. And that's true because we can't purchase foresight. I think that's a really critical point, Seth. Hindsight bias, starting point bias, the failure to recognize the asymmetry of foresight all make us mistakenly believe we will know when and how to react. So it causes us to downplay or ignore the very clear real risks of long-term gun ownership. Well, then we should discuss how we respond to legitimate threats, both with effective choices and maybe what are ineffective choices, right? Because we said that it's inevitable that we bear some risk of being a victim of a crime because of this combination of information asymmetry between the perpetrator and the victim and our system of government that seeks to maximize individual liberty. But how we respond, both as individuals and as a community, is up to us, the potential victims, not the perpetrator. And those responses that we can have as individuals and as communities fall along a spectrum from what I might call more individually oriented ones to more community oriented ones. And I think we ought to discuss them in light of the most serious gun related crimes, you know, things like mass shootings. And I have to say that one of the ones that bothers me the most out of all the types of mass shootings 
is the mass shootings of children in the school setting. Right. And I think the problem is in the U.S., we tend to focus more on these individually oriented responses. Like, for example, after the Parkland and some of these other school shootings, a number of states and federal representatives push the idea of arming teachers in schools. Similarly, after every mass shooting, there seems like there's always calls by in some quarters to make it easier for people to acquire guns and carry them around surreptitiously or openly. You know, Seth, if there's one thing about this that I, I just shake my head over constantly about that, it's calls like that. I mean, it's not as if we had a problem with guns not being easily available. I mean, for goodness sake, there are significantly more privately owned guns than there are people in the United States. But even though we could buy plenty of guns, we can't buy foresight. And that's certainly true for any individual, and it's certainly not true for teachers, which I think in that particular case, it's sort of the same analogy as we talked about as the, the home invasion, but a lot worse. I agree, Seth. The teacher would have to carry around a gun likely for many years on the statistically small chance that an incident of some kind where the gun might be useful would occur at their school or in their classroom on a date and time and in a manner that they couldn't possibly predict. And at such times, they'd have to be ready, willing, and able to act. Right, and the school faces a much more likely possibility that that very weapon held by the teacher would be stolen or used either by the teacher or a student or another person to cause grave harm, which is why it's just a laughable response to this problem. Which is why, Seth, I've always felt that community-level responses while they're perhaps less satisfying to us as individuals, arguably do a much better job of protecting us as individuals. For example, I mean, we could ban guns altogether. I, we don't talk about that in this country because maybe we realize it's just not practical politically, but countries do that. We could also, on a more perhaps possible basis, we could restrict gun ownership, at least as to the quantity of firearms, the amount of ammunition that people are allowed to have, the type of firearm, you know, all things like that. I mean, we had a situation in a neighboring community to San Carlos where there was a guy who was not terribly mentally stable who was caught owning enough firepower to basically take out the entire local police force. Yeah, which reminds me that the type of guns do matter. If a criminal has foresight, you can at least minimize the damage they could do. I mean, if they only could have a knife, for example, that's a very different scenario than a surprise attack with an automatic weapon. We could also do things like preventing, and we do do some of these things, we could do things like preventing people most likely to pose a risk from owning a firearm. People like convicted criminals, those suffering from particular kinds of mental conditions, making them a risk to the community from owning guns. Although I have to acknowledge that having the government decide or make judgments on your mental state in, in applying a law is a very difficult challenge. Yeah, no, I get that. And as also a technology guy, maybe I think technology can help. I mean, it certainly doesn't eliminate the problem, but it could certainly reduce it, whether it's sort of smart IDs or trigger locks and things like that. And it doesn't feel like mandating those types of solutions would run afoul of any sort of personal liberty issues. Another thing that's just popped up in the news recently as a result of uh, some civil suits that were brought against firearm manufacturers by the parents who were uh, suffered the tragedy of having their children killed in Newtown is holding firearm manufacturers financially liable if they target their products at people who pose a higher risk of committing mass shootings. And I think in any case, and I know we started with the caveat that we're not talking about guns for other types of uses like hunting or even sport, but I know people use that as an argument to say, well, they shouldn't be restricted or whatnot. But if those were true usage, and of course we could debate the merits of hunting, but if assuming those were allowed, guns used for hunting could be kept at facilities, right? And checked out when needed, or guns kept at ranges for sports, right? They don't have to be kept in private, you know, in home facilities. 
You know, Seth, in this type of situation, one of the questions I always ask myself is, since a number of the ideas that we just teed up, some of which actually are being implemented, are reasonable at least to consider, why isn't more being done? It's kind of like that old adage, if you're so smart, how come you ain't rich? Unfortunately, I think the problem here is that so many people are so entrenched in their beliefs that there's just little room for movement. It, it's, a, it's another example of everyone trying to avoid cognitive dissonance. Isn't it all about the Second Amendment? Don't just most people assume the Second Amendment prevents any kind of significant gun regulation? They do. But I got to tell you that even Antonin Scalia, who is one of the most conservative jurists that we've had in quite a long time and wrote the recent major opinions that expanded gun rights under the Second Amendment, even he refused to buy that argument. What he basically said is you have to respect the constitutional right to own a firearm, but you can regulate it. You just have to do it constitutionally. OK, so like, well, like no right is absolute. Crying fire in a crowded movie theater doesn't violate the First Amendment, for example. That's right, Seth. Scalia's argument in the Heller case basically explained why general prohibitions on gun ownership are unconstitutional, but prohibitions on things like machine guns are just fine. Well, we're clearly ignoring, as a society in the United States, what is an obvious need because there's empirical data here, right? Gun ownership levels are significant predictors of violent crime rates and mass shootings. And you can look at that data in the U.S., state by state, you could look and run the world, country by country, and it all shows the same thing. That also reminds me of a really important and interesting study that was done a few years ago, which sadly was triggered by the, the Newtown school shootings. But some researchers were able to use that event to go out and do a statistically valid analysis of whether or not more guns in a society lead to more deaths. And basically what they were playing off of is the fact that after every mass shooting, as we mentioned, gun purchases go up. So there was a mass shooting at Newtown, a lot of guns get bought, and then they were able to statistically analyze the correlation between that and changes in death rates. And what they showed was it is statistically significant. In other words, it is empirically validated that having more guns in a society leads to more deaths. Which on some level seems obvious to me, but there's other things that I think are less obvious that I'm a bit surprised don't enter the public discussion. Like, for example, particularly in the last number of years, we've talked more and more about police shootings, right, and police behavior. And we do recognize there are racial bias issues here and, you know, a lot of institutional racism and, and all that sort of stuff that clearly is a topic for another podcast. But what's not really discussed is, doesn't it seem to be that the main reason why this country has more issues and a more volume of police shootings really than any other sort of industrialized country is because our police have to assume that every person they encounter can be armed. So on some level, I of course I fault the, the racism and, and those sort of bias issues in it, but on some level, I understand why cops have itchy trigger fingers. I agree, Seth, and it's really interesting that people don't seem to draw that connection. It's another example of what we talked about earlier, that most of the cops that I'm familiar with are really nervous about ordinary citizens having a lot of guns. OK, Mark, so let's try to sum this up. If we we discuss that, if we're just trying to convince ourselves, then we could just keep doing a better job at preventing these tragedies. You know, frankly, we'll just keep fooling ourselves, right? That's our hindsight bias at work. Rather, we need to go deeper into the cause of these events. And a better choice, Seth, would be to adjust our laws to maintain a better balance that would promote a collective good. 
And as I said earlier, let's keep in mind that to support law enforcement actually means making their job easier. And that's done by trying to reduce the prevalence and lethality of weapons in the general community. But we do want our listeners to keep in mind that when you do, and we hope you will, push for more gun regulation, you're going to run into a lot of nonsense arguments. Don't be afraid to refute them. And to me, the craziest argument that you keep hearing out there is the one where people say, well, if guns are illegal, then only criminals will have guns. That is so frankly stupid because it's true for any law. If, you know, we make murder illegal, only criminals will murder. Another one that always bothers me is I need a gun for protection against the government. Hey, dudes, the main thing you have protecting yourself against the government is the right to vote and change who operates the government. That's the foundation of our whole system. <laughs> That's right. Um, and clearly dangerous to take any other approach, right, other than the peaceful voting. But which leads me to another crazy argument is that people sort of say this is what the founding fathers wanted because it's in the Constitution. You know, we do have to recognize that 200 plus years ago, they didn't have a country with a standing army. The concept of the militia was needed for individuals to be ready. And clearly, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and everyone else could not have predicted the dramatic increase in the deadliness of weapons. And they wouldn't have written the law that way had they certainly known that. We also have to keep in mind, Seth, that when the country was first founded, it was very lightly populated. And a lot of people lived far away from the kind of community organizations that could provide safety and protection for them. Another argument that I commonly hear is, to people opposed to gun regulation, is, it's just my right. Well, that's true. It is a right in the Constitution. But as we've talked about many times, no constitutional right is absolute. That's why we have prohibitions on screaming fire in a crowded movie theater. And it's why we don't allow individuals to own their own tanks or nuclear warheads. <laughs> That's right. And which leads me to the last what I would call false argument, which we discussed a bit earlier, which is, well, I need to be armed for my own protection. And we've shown that it's just an irrational purchase because, among other things, hindsight bias. You know, another thing to keep in mind about that, Seth, is always follow the money. Remind yourself about whose interests are being served by the sale of guns more than a rational free market would have dictated. It's a bit of a grift from gun makers in the NRA. So like all I can tell people is no matter how tempting it is, please don't buy a gun. But unfortunately, I wonder, Mark, is it too late for America? I mean, I think of Australia and it's sort of what I call it's Port Arthur moment. And for people who don't know, there was a mass shooting in 1996 in Port Arthur in Tasmania in Australia. And afterwards, Australia significantly reduced gun ownership and bought back guns and and did all kinds of activities. And there was a lot of pushback politically and otherwise at the time, but they did it. And there hasn't been a mass shooting since in Australia and many fewer annual gun deaths. Yeah, I'm familiar with that, Seth. Unfortunately, I don't think America's ever going to have an event that motivates us like that. And I'm sorry to say that, but, you know, for me, if slaughtering a bunch of young school children hiding under their desks and screaming for the parents that they will never see again didn't wake us up, what will? Yeah, it's it's really depressing because there are many things that America is really good at. But if you look at a world of nations and realize you are an extreme outlier among all industrialized countries, maybe it's time to look inward and realize maybe it's you. You know, Seth, that's an example of how a lot of people like to talk about how exceptional America is in, in a good way. But sometimes American exceptionalism runs in exactly the wrong direction. 
Well, Mark, I know we usually like to end these podcasts at a little more of a upbeat note, but this is a very different topic. So I think this is where we should end it. It's a very serious one. I hope people take the issue very seriously and really look into the psychological and economic basis around gun ownerships and have real debates about them. At the very least, what I hope we'll do is that we all get out there and demand that our legislators do something more than they're currently doing, because they can. This can be regulated, even though it's a constitutional right. And we definitely want more from them than just some idiotic offering of thoughts and prayers. I absolutely agree. And Mark, we'll probably be back with a lighter topic uh, for next time. Thank you for the discussion. Signing off, this is Seth. And Mark. Hoping you still enjoyed this podcast and, and think of it well in hindsight. See you next time, folks. This podcast is copyright Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. All rights reserved. The Boiling Frog podcast is written, produced, and hosted by Mark Olbert and Seth Rosenblatt. Audio engineering and technical support provided by Caroline Olbert. Theme song composed by Benjamin Rosenblatt. Music arrangement and production by Mia Rosenblatt. For more information, resources, or to subscribe to this podcast, please visit our website at www.theboilingfrog.net.